Right now, though, we're going to be in Judges. So if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, we are, as you can see, maybe or have picked up in a little bit of a reconstruction um, of the church in terms of just kind of uh, retro or or redoing. We try to do this every, I don't know, six to nine months. When I was a high school teacher, I used to change the uh, setting of my room every uh, probably four weeks because kids would sit in the same spots every time we get too comfortable. and like, mm, today we're not going to have chairs. And so I'd move them all out, whatever, and make them freak out and get kind of the edge of what to expect. I find that when churches stay the same uh, aesthetically, people make little sacred cows about uh, what is special to them, like color the carpet, although this red carpet is certainly not one of ours. Um, but like the cross, we changed the cross, and everyone was like, what happened to the cross? Well, let's remember, we didn't have a cross for the first two years of our church, so uh, quit freaking out. We uh, changed things because we're readjusting and making sure that you don't you know, get too uh, attached to this thing called a building. Remember that it's not the church. It just happens to be where the church gathers. So all that to say, there are normally booklets in the back with uh, study guides for judges and others. If you're new, you can get that at the info table. Soon there'll be something else up that has those in there, but um, it's a study guide that will help you go through uh, our study with us as groups or as individuals. Today, though, we're in Judges chapter 3, and we're in verse 7, and here is what it says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And all God's people said, this is God's word. So we're in Judges, and last uh, time we were there, we discussed what is a sin cycle, and it was described in Judges 2, uh, about verses 11 to 20, and it describes kind of this record that we have here of God's people and Judges as this cyclical tale that kind of goes through worship and rebellion, worship and rebellion. And um, throughout the story, God is seen constantly faithful to His promises, both to curse and to bless uh, because of the promise he made uh, to Israel through Abraham. And man is pictured constantly and consistently as unfaithful to all his obligations to God. And so there are overall 12 different judges. There are six what they call major ones and six minor ones. Major just means they dedicate a large portion of the story to uh, those judges and the minor ones they just kind of mention briefly. You don't learn too much about them. But throughout all the time of the judges, you see this pattern that comes out. Most of it's there. Some pieces are occasionally missing in the pattern. But it goes something like this. Uh, The Israelites sin by worshiping false gods. Then the Lord gets angry because that violates the covenant and the relationship that they have. Then the Lord will hand them over to one of their enemies um, as punishment The Israelites, after they are punished for some time, will cry out to God for deliverance from their oppression and their slavery. And the Lord will respond by raising up a military leader, whom they call judges here, and to rescue them. And then the Israelites, after the judge raises up and defeats the enemy, they will reign for a time and they'll experience some level of peace for a time period under that judge until he or she dies then the Israelites will forget God's salvation, God's deliverance, and they will again begin the same cycle. So that's what you see over and over again throughout the book. And overall, the book of Judges reads like kind of like an epic miniseries where every episode gets kind of worse than the last, uh, more bloody, more unfaithful, more full of sin. And then it ends with a very somewhat disappointing but exciting uh, last episode, kind of like the last episode of Lost, if you know what I mean, right? Just like, that just was terrible, okay? So, but 
It's sad in this story because they end up being much more uh, faithless than they were when they first started. And so today we see the very first judge, who is really the best judge uh, of them all, and it's the judge, or he's the judge, you probably should compare the others to as in terms of how good or bad that they were. And this guy's name is Othniel. Uh, ironically, he is a, uh, a family man. He is uh, the one who fights the most powerful uh, enemy that Israel faces throughout the entire book of Judges. And he dies uh, having uh, led well for an entire generation 40 years uh, of, of time uh, to the glory of God. And what's uh, ironic is that it's unlikely you've heard much about him. Uh, nobody, people are like, oh yeah, I know about Othniel. I mean, that guy's just amazing. You know? What you hear about is guys like Samson. Uh, if we mention judges, uh, people typically heard of the muscle-bound uh, womanizer named Samson, who kills Philistines with a jawbone, rips lions in half, and dies by committing suicide to the glory of God. We know all about Samson, not realizing that the enemy he fought was a very small tribal people, the Philistines, not at all like Othniel, was, again, not a family man like Othniel. I mean, what we see here is that God's best uh, are not always his baddest. Um, and not always the most interesting of people. In fact, Othniel is pretty plain, pretty boring, but incredibly faithful. Um, and I guess if, if I'm going to die, my hope is that I'm not known for this list of things that I do, but that I was faithful. And I really believe that what God truly wants is uh, a bunch of more men and women who will not necessarily do amazing things, but will just do what He asked them to do, which sometimes is the simplest of things. And so we see in Othniel, boring simplicity and faithfulness, um, and it's awesome. So Israel starts this first cycle the same way they start the others, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So let me just translate that for you. Uh, They don't do what God told them to do, and they do what God told them not to do. Okay, there's sin for you. And so that's what they do. And it says the people of Israel did what was evil, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Now, their path to oppression, their path to false worship, began, as I've already gone over, uh, with their refusal to obey God's command to begin with, which was to dispose the rest of the enemies that lived in the land. So instead of disposing them, they go, well, let's just manage them. And so let's just tolerate them. And their toleration of their enemy eventually led to them marrying their enemy, and they became family, which is a problem when you worship false gods or different gods. So what began then is a few Canaanites living among a lot of Israelites becomes a lot of Canaanites with just a few Israelites now living among them. And it is, um, obviously, the result is oppression. Because when you immerse yourselves in the world, you forget the Lord. That's exactly what Israel did. They forgot the Lord. Now, this isn't like amnesia, where you have a child forgetting he has a dad. Okay? This is more like a defiant child that decides, I want nothing to do with my loving father who gave me everything, protects me perfectly, provides for me perfectly, teaches me perfectly, cares and loves for me perfectly, want nothing to do with you. They forgot their Lord, not just forgot God. They forgot their relationship with Him. And I don't know, I've been thinking about recently, as we begin to talk about God getting angry about this, that might be a struggle for some of us. And I wanted to make sure that we emphasized or comprehended as best as we can the love that God has for His children. And I have only learned this as I have become a dad. So, could you put the picture up of my boy? Uh, this is my youngest son, and his name is Hudson Bruce. And um, the other day, this, this struck me. This is as I'm studying the anger of the Lord. Okay? Um, I have four children. One is about to turn 11. Uh, We have an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and then this 1-year-old 
uh, stud. And little Hudson is, uh, he was sitting, I won't forget this moment this happened. He was standing on the couch because he's learned to walk around by holding on to things. And he's standing there, he's just looking up at me. And he has nothing but love coming out of him. And quite frankly, I have nothing but love going at him. He is incredibly easy to love. I never have to struggle to love this kid. Okay? Now give him seven years. It comes a little bit of a struggle sometimes, right? But right now, at this age, he is loving. He, he is incredibly dependent upon me. He needs me. I enjoy him. I look at him and think, man, you could never do anything to make me not love you. It is an awesome and powerful incredible feeling to see just, it's just joy. I don't have to, like, I think I'm joyful. I think I love you. It's just there. It is, it is awesome. And I saw that, and I paused for a moment, so I thought, and maybe this was God just saying this, like, that is how God the Father sees you. I don't know if we even comprehend that. We always have this relationship with God, like God the Father, and we've had, some of us maybe had some really bad experience with dads, and we use that to kind of represent our dad, and let's just talk about a perfect father with perfect love. God is not some boss or employee, you know, employer that employs us. He is a father, and he looks at us in the same way I look at my little son with such love. And we have such a dependence upon him, we don't even see that, we don't even know that. As we talk about God's anger, we need to keep that in the forefront of our mind, that that's really truly how God sees you, how God loves his children. Because God, his people, I should say, abandon their loving father for a deadbeat dad. That's what they go after. They choose to do that. And the most beautiful thing is that God doesn't punish them impulsively. Like when your kid disobeys, I have a tendency at times to be somewhat reactive, not think about, you know, you just get angry at times, or you respond without thinking. God doesn't ever do that. He's never impulsive. He's never impatient. He never just unleashes, though he may want to. Instead, like a loving, truly patient father, he watches his children disobey over time. And they disobey again and again, and he endures their unfaithfulness. And he endures it over and over again. And he watches them walk away from him, and yet he shows them mercy and only kindness, beckoning him back. I love you. I'm here. Wanting them to turn and repent. Come back. And I think... If you really comprehended it, for me, if I sit in it, it's very shocking to consider how men, and I say men typically, mankind, responds to the patience of a holy God. How much we take for granted the immeasurable kindness and patience that God shows us. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote that the kindness of God, okay, the fact that God doesn't give us what we justly deserve right now, the moment we sin, that He doesn't do that is intended to lead us to repentance. God's patience, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And what I see sometimes is that this kindness often leads sinful men to deeper rebellion. And so... The other side of God's kindness is that He is too kind and too loving to allow His children to continue in sin without doing anything to help them stop. That's also a kindness. It is loving. This picture of a loving God. It is loving for God the Father to punish His children. It is an act of love. Another in kindness intended to lead them back to Him, intended to lead them to repentance and joy. And when we understand, when we truly understand the weakness of our flesh and how broken we are, I think, I believe that we actually begin to see not only that we need God to be merciful, but we actually need Him to be angry at times. We need Him to be angry so that He will save us from ourselves. If we truly understand how broken we are, 
if we truly understand how our flesh will lead us sometimes. And so, like any loving father, when his children sin, he gets angry. In this case, he gets angry with the nation of Israel. And like a loving father committed to his children, he punishes them. And the question I sat in was like, well, how do you spank an entire nation? Right? Like, how is this going to happen? Oh, you use another nation. That's what he did. Their anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. So he sells his people, gives them over. This isn't because of the strength of this king that took them away from God. God gives them over to this king, this king of Mesopotamia, a man named Cushan Rishathaim, so that his people will be punished. And his name actually means the Cushite of double wickedness, like Captain Double Evil, right? And a lot of commentators like look at this name, and they argue that, yeah, the writer's probably just kind of making fun of this guy in the past, this king who they know ultimately gets defeated, uh, but they're making fun of him because he was really bad. It's more likely that it is probably the writer's way of emphasizing um, basically how powerful and severe this oppression was. It was really bad. And whoever this man was, it's noteworthy that he did not come from within the land. He was not from the peoples that they were told to kick out. This guy came from the upper northeast and came down a foreign power into this land. And if he's coming that far and conquering this many people, Israel was probably a speed bump on the way to Egypt, where he was probably really going. He was an emperor. He was a powerful leader, the most powerful oppressor that we see in the book of Judges. He was king double evil, and also double evil in the sense of Mesopotamia was where two very evil empires came out of that eventually conquered Israel and Judah and took them into slavery, Assyria and Babylon. This is where they came from. And so we see this guy conquer and govern for eight years. He oppresses these people in slavery. All of the land. It's also dubbed wicked in this sense that we see, which is something that should disturb you if you actually read. By read, I mean you look at the Bible and you don't just pass over and go, what just happened here? You see God using wickedness to punish wickedness. It should at least cause you to pause for a second. We see that evil is one of God's tools. I don't know what else to call it. You're empowering a foreign nation that's pagan and allowing them, which is an easier way of saying, causing them to punish your people. And the question that probably comes in your mind is like, how can God use evil? How can he employ evil? And here's what the next question should be. How can he not? What do you mean? Okay. Let me think about the most evil thing that's ever happened on the history of the world. The death of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I believe he was God eternal, came down in human flesh, and was killed by his own creation. Before he was killed, he was so humiliated that he stood there as his own creation spit upon him with spit he created, mocked him with tongues he created, beat him with hands he created, and hung him on a tree that he created. That's about the most evil thing I can think of. And don't for a second, which I think some of us believe this, that Jesus was crucified by accident, fate, or dumb luck. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, let me read one verse to you that maybe you've never read before. In Acts 2, verse 22, Peter is preaching. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with might, works, and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan? God's definite plan? 
One Easter ago, I preached a sermon called Who Killed Jesus? It was based off Isaiah 53, and the answer was God. Go read Isaiah 53. So, I want us to understand something very important. There are only two things in existence. Ready? One is a good, perfect, holy creator. The other is bad, broken creation. That's it. You're not over here, and neither am I. Everything is over here except God. In other words, God only has wickedness to work with. Catch that? God only has wickedness to work with. And because this is God's story, written by God, about God, for God, He will use whatever He can, which is what He has here, a broken creation, to display His greatness. And what should amaze us and awe us is that He's able to do that, that He's able to glorify Himself with such brokenness, broken people, broken earth, broken everything. God only has evil to work with. So we careful, like, why can he use evil? Well, what else is he going to use? Right? Go further. He spanks a nation with a nation. And like any good spanking, it hurts. And Israel cries. They don't cry out because they come to their senses and they realize that they are wrong. That they brought this upon themselves. They cry because they're in pain. I've seen that firsthand with my own children. Thank you, Father, for spanking me. I understand now that I'm... That's not really the first reaction that you typically get. They cry out because they're in pain. But let's make sure we understand, it takes eight years for them to get to that point. It's a great thing for parents to go, at least it wasn't an eight-year spanking, son. Right? An eight-year spanking before they would cry, before they would turn to God. Eight years, and you probably have seen maybe in your own life and life of others, you're like, when are they going to hit bottom? I don't know. It took Israel here eight years. And what doesn't surprise me is that it took eight years. That doesn't surprise me at all. What surprises me is how God responds with such grace. Because when I punish my children, when I tell my children, don't do this, don't do this, do this, and they don't, don't do this, and they do, over and over and over and over and over again, and they keep doing it, right? I'm sure that never happens, right? And they keep disobeying. When they finally turn and realize they need me, and cry out to me, I'm very tempted to go, yeah, told you so, right? Brought it upon yourself, shows you right. Suffer now, told you not to touch it. That's my flesh. God shows us a perfect response and He shows us grace and He says, but when the people of Israel cried out, when they cried out, the moment they cried out, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Because of their disobedience, because of their stubborn hearts, because of their rebellion, he raised up to deliver to save them a guy named Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. And he delivers them. And what I like about, as we move into Othniel, you see that God not only uses people, but he uses persons. And up until Othniel, for his first three chapters, it's been all tribal. You had God calling up tribes. You had God sending tribes against enemies. You had entire tribes rebelling against God and and being idolatrous. But Judges now moves to a place where we see how faithful individuals impact nations. That faithful individuals can, can change the destiny, if you will, of an entire nation. See, I believe God works through nations, He works through governments, He works through churches and organizations and groups like that, but we also see that in redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, God works out that history on a miniature scale when one man and one woman stands up 
and is faithful. Individuals matter to God, and you and I, we wrongly believe that we have little significance to God as an individual, that you really don't matter like that guy doing all those amazing things. And it's just simply not true. So let me just tell you some some truth. And listen to this truth. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows every hair that is on your head. He knows every aspect and quirk and little thing about your personality. He knows every fear you have. He knows every talent you have, every experience you have. Every fe- he knows every single thing about you. He knows you. And God intends to use you, who you are, what He's made you to be, what you've experienced, what you have done, in order to bring Him glory. You matter to Him. And I'm not trying to be Tony Robbins, you know, positive thinker, think highly about yourself, to say that God knows who you are. Like I know my son. He knows you. And he cares for you. And he wants something more for you. You matter not only to him, you matter to us. You matter to your children. And you matter to their children they will have one day. We see this one man stand up. And he, this one man's a stud, which is both good and bad. He's in some ways inspiring and some days totally discouraging. Because Othniel gives us a picture of, he's a godly man. He's a guy that as a younger, um, he's a younger brother of Caleb. And Caleb was a stud. God was the one who said, Caleb's a stud. Okay? Caleb was studly. He and Joshua were like the warriors of warriors. So he is related to Caleb. He comes from warrior stock. He is one of the last conqueror, conquest heroes of Joshua. Because that's where his story was first recorded. He is heroic. He is, more than that, in the first chapter of Judges, we see that he is a husband. A guy that got his wife, because Caleb said, there's a city over here called Deber. Whoever takes it gets my daughter. He's like, bam! And he goes. So he fought for his bride. Then we see later, he sends his bride, he has a strong woman by her side, goes back to her dad and says, I want springs for this land you gave me for my marriage present. And he gives her springs. You see, Othniel is, has a strong woman by his side, godly husband, godly father who's going to raise a godly home. He's a stud. And compare him with the last judge and judges who is a womanizing, wandering, muscle-head sinner who, again, commits suicide. You have Othniel, in all his simplicity, impact a generation of people. Forty years of people. And his victory, whatever it looked like, is not recounted in colorful, heroic tales, but in just simple, black and white faithfulness. Now, the sermon, though, is not titled, Be Like Othniel. Okay? Here's what I mean. Though I think he's a worthy man to imitate, he is at best, at best, a tool. At best, he is a tool for the Lord. Nothing, no one, nothing, no one can succeed without God. Nothing and no one can succeed without God. Everyone is a tool for God's glory. Some may be better looking tools. Some are uglier. Some are big. Some are small. But without God, they are just tools lying on the bench, good for nothing. Othniel is not qualified to lead because he is some awesome warrior, godly husband, or loving father. He is those things, but that is not what God uses to qualify him as a leader. 
Othniel's qualified because God calls him. Because God empowers him by his spirit to do God's purpose. In fact, the very name Othniel means God's strength. It is all about God every time. And throughout Judges, and really throughout the entire Old Testament, we see God's Spirit coming upon a very colorful lot of individuals. Some that we probably should imitate, and some we definitely should not. Okay? But God comes upon His Spirit, sends upon them His Spirit, and He strengthens them to do something they could never have accomplished alone. In the case of Othniel, what he really does, he takes his family guy from the, a nowhere city, Debur, to be the ruler of all of Israel and to conquer the most powerful emperor that they would face. The Spirit moves this guy to respond to God with action, to step into a fight with impossible odds, and to do so without fear. That's what we see happening. Now, the Spirit of God doesn't also come upon Othniel because of anything in Othniel or because Othniel invites help. What I mean is, the Spirit comes upon whomever He chooses, whenever He chooses, for whatever He chooses. God calls men and women, even children, and He equips them to fulfill that call and give them victory. But that may not be the victorious life that you're thinking of. Here's what I mean. You hear a lot of Christians talking about the victorious life. What they really mean is that I'm prosperous materially. A victorious life or God giving you victory means this. It always accomplishes God's glory whether you win or not. Okay? That's a very different way of looking at it. God's concerned with his glory and will be victorious but you might not be in an earthly sense because that brings God glory now I do know that without God's spirit men always tend toward what is right in their own eyes like we see in judges men always try and depend upon themselves and men always experience defeat after defeat after defeat in every sense of the word so our question is all right I don't get me some of that spirit, right? If I want to live like Othniel, whether I win or lose, or it's colorful or not, but I, you know, obviously he is, he is content, he is faithful, I want some of that. I mean, I've got my battles, I've got my impossible odds, I have, I have the enemies, list them out, that are oppressing me, I have troubles that are making me cry, how do I get some of that spirit? Well, I'll tell you, it's not by being faithful or spiritual enough to persuade God to help you. It begins, quite frankly, by acknowledging you're helpless to help yourself. The Bible is, is, again, it's not a story about faithful men and women living faithfully so they can save themselves. That's not the story. The story is about billions and billions of faithless men who are helpless, who are confused, who are lost, and one faithful man who was not named Jesus Christ. That's what the story of the Bible is about. Now, everything, even a story about Othniel, points to Jesus. Let me prove it, right? Think, how can this Old Testament ever be? Let me show you. It's amazing. It's as if God wrote this whole story and knew how it was beginning and ending, okay? Everything points to Jesus. So you have Joshua, right prior to Judges, right? He was the first judge in the sense of the first military leader who led like a general like we see. The first deliverer. And his name means God saves. Fantastic. He dies. Judges starts. And we see God saving his people through Joshua-like deliverers. But they're sinful deliverer after sinful deliverer. And past Judges, you have priests being used and anointed by God to save. you got prophets, you got kings, always coming to deliver. And all the while, Israel has been told and is waiting for the one true deliverer. 
The one anointed, spirit-filled, covenant-keeping leader who will save it and once and for all fix everything. And every time they see a priest come, they're like, nope, he sucked. That guy, nope, he screwed up. That, they're always waiting. Where is he? Where's the true king? Enter Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, the Christ. The anointed, which is the Christ, God saves, the anointed Savior of God. The guy they've been waiting for. The guy that all this points to. So, even more so, like Othniel, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Like Othniel, Jesus arrives after a relative who went before him. Othniel had Caleb. Jesus had John, his cousin. That's not just a quinky dink. Okay? Like Othniel, he comes from, he's a family man from an obscure town. He's just a normal guy. Like Othniel, Jesus' ministry begins with the Holy Spirit coming upon him, in Jesus' case, like a dove at his baptism. And like Othniel, Jesus was empowered to judge double evil, double wickedness. In this case, it was the true double enemy of Satan and sin. And like Othniel, Jesus gives us, through his victory, rest, but this time it's forever, of which the number 40 really implies perfection. But very much unlike Othniel, and this is where it gets a little crazy, Jesus Christ judges in a way that's totally unexpected. He fights in a way that you go, I don't know if that fighting style is the best one. He employs, this is, look how it's all connected. God uses, again, evil, double evil, to pour out wrath on his son. He uses the evil of Jewish leaders and the pagan Gentiles, the Romans, to punish his son, ultimately, who was sinless. Let me prove it. Acts chapter 4, another verse that you may read across occasionally. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, there's your Jew, and Pontius Pilate, because you're Gentile, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, so everybody, the world, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. God chose to punish His sinless Son. Use this double evil to do it. And his sinless son, by the power of the Spirit, chose willingly, silently, and courageously to lay down his life to deliver his people from oppression forever. He fought through sacrifice. And he dies, here's the catch, not only so he can deliver us from sin, but so that he can send that same Spirit that was in Othniel, and the same Spirit, Holy Spirit, that overcame him to dwell in us forever. On the night he was arrested, he said, this is the way it's going to happen, guys. He'd been telling his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And the last night he told them the same thing. And here's why, he said, in John 16, because I've said these things to you guys, sorrow has filled your heart. They're like, oh my gosh, what do you mean you're going to die? We just like walked in, we're having a great meal, they think you're going to be king, and now you're telling us you're going to die? So they begin to be sad and despondent. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not, if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. The Holy Spirit comes through faith in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. You want some Holy Spirit power? Put your faith in Christ. That's where it starts. The cycle of our enslavement to sin stopped with Jesus Christ. 
The Holy Spirit not only comes through faith in Jesus to seal our adoption as sons, it also, He also equips us to be warriors to do His will like Othniel. In other words, through the power of the Spirit, we are equipped and called to lead and to fight and to enjoy rest with Him. But here has been the, it's the current thing that has vexed me. Because what the Bible says about the Spirit, and it says a heck of a lot, just open up the back of your Bible, the concordance, and sit, look at Spirit. It talks about the Spirit helping us pray, the Spirit comforting, the Spirit guiding, the Spirit teaching, the Spirit strengthening, the Spirit leading. It never stops talking about the Spirit. And yet, because we seem to dismiss or disregard or or abuse at times what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit really is ignored as vital to a living faith. Growing up, I really didn't hear a ton about the Holy Spirit. I was raised in kind of community churches, and we kind of talk about them. I just don't remember that. The other aspect, I went to a Assemblies of God Pentecostal college where they never stopped talking about Him. There's a spirit going on everywhere, all the time, from bad driving to other things. Okay? It was crazy. I'm like, that can't be right. That's not what the Bible says. But neither was this. We ignore the Holy Spirit, and I think this is partially out of pride of self-reliance. So some of us just think, well, I just really don't need, at least that's how we live. I really don't need guidance, comfort, teaching. I can figure it out myself. That's kind of our culture. Sometimes it's just ignorance of the Scriptures. You just really don't know what the Bible says because you don't take time to read it. That was probably me. And then there are those, quite frankly, who are just... I talk about the Holy Spirit or I pray about the Holy Spirit, but I'm just a little fearful of being labeled like, you know, charismatic. You really are more concerned about what men think. And here's the result. Because of all this, Because of a neglect of the Holy Spirit, more Christians I meet are claiming to love Jesus, but they secretly live very unhappy, overwhelmed, and defeated lives. And I believe it's because of our neglect of the Spirit that we see in Othniel in Christ. The Spirit He promised to give us. So here's what I see in Othniel in, in just a little package. I think the things that we need to take away from this First and foremost, like Othniel, you understand that you are in a war. Just as God said, the victory is mine, I've already won, same as with us, but you are in a war, there is an enemy prowling about, an enemy who wants to discourage and destroy your relationship with God, your family, and everything else. There is a spiritual war going on right now between two kingdoms and the battles are waged out in relationships, in marriages, in work, in sexuality, even in finances. And you need to understand something. When things are difficult, when things are confusing, when things are hard, when especially you have tension with someone else in a marriage or in a relationship or whatever it is, they are not the enemy. There is an enemy. And that enemy is destroying all of that. And the minute you lose sight that you're in a war, or that you have an enemy, everyone else becomes the enemy. Or the wrong thing becomes the enemy. Work is not the enemy. Money is not the enemy. There is an enemy that attacks and destroys and perverts all those things. You're in a war. The other is that because you've been given the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, you are, just as Othniel was, called to respond. You have a role to play in this battle and it's not to remain on your tush. Othniel acted. Othniel did something. I'm not convinced Othniel knew exactly where it was going to lead. I'm not convinced he was told, by the way, you're going to be able to become the ruler of all Israel and clean this all up. There was no guarantee. Your role may be big, it may be small in your estimation, but it's yours. 
And remember, if Jesus is the standard, we know that the worth of our call is not measured by the world's evaluation of success. Because if you want to say, well, this is worth doing because these numbers, this success, this prosperity. Okay, look at Christ who fulfilled His call perfectly and died. So be careful evaluating your call based off of what the perceived value of it is if it's not compared with Christ. A couple other things. You are in a war. You're called to respond. But guess what? You're helpless to do so. You are helpless to help yourself. It doesn't matter how healthy your marriage is. It doesn't matter how stud of a warrior you've been. It doesn't matter how um, strong your family is, how gifted you are, how educated you are, how experienced you might be. You will not succeed in blank without God. Fill in the blank. Parenting, work, marriage, whatever. You will not succeed without God. Specifically, you will not succeed without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you will walk down the wrong paths, make the wrong decisions, fight the wrong fights, and you will even expect the wrong fruit from your labor. You'll feel defeated. But the good news is, not that just you're helpless, but you're helped. It just comes from someone other than yourself. And I believe the Father, like a loving Father, desires for us to cry out for help, to pray. And I promise you, as He did with Othniel and Israel even, He responds. And some, I think, hearing sermons like this, sit and wonder, if you've especially been a Christian for a while, like, okay, if I have the Holy Spirit, where is He? I tell you, the Holy Spirit is there. He's been given you as a gift to help you. The Bible says, don't take my word for it, because there's no power there. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has been given to help you, to help you speak. The Holy Spirit has been given to help you learn, to help you grow, to help you decide, to help you endure, to help you find peace, to help you find joy, to help you understand. Talk to Him. Talk to Him. The Holy Spirit is a person. It means you can have relationship with Him, not it. You're helped. You might just be neglectful, though. And lastly, not only helped, you are, as the Bible would say, more than a conqueror. What's that mean? It means that you're guaranteed success. Success, success in terms of God's definition. That if you fail, you always fail forward. You always fail into his arms. Here's the way John Piper wrote it. I thought it was the best way. It's from a sermon back in 1981. He says that it is a great incentive and not discouragement that all of our effort to do what is right is the work of Almighty God within us. At least for myself, I am greatly encouraged when the going gets rough that any effort I make to do right is a sign of God's grace at work in me. It's not about you. Always about Him. So in conclusion, I do want us to live like Othniel, but I want us to live like really all the disciples. And if you ever take a chance to read through the book of Acts, there's only 28 chapters. It reads pretty fast with this narrative. But what you see, it's not the history of, of what a bunch of guys did for, the, for God. It's the history of when 12 helpless men, and they're pretty helpless. Read the Gospels, okay? 12 helpless men depend upon the Spirit for help. And time after time, you see the Holy Spirit explicitly filling and sending and preventing and directing and protecting and comforting and filling with joy and encouraging and strengthening and bolstering and helping these men obey what God has told them to do. And sometimes that meant they suffered. And sometimes that meant they died. But here's what I desire so much for us as a church and for me as an individual. 
this perspective, this dependence upon the Holy Spirit, where here's what you see. These guys were always certain where they were to go. And they were always confident about what they were to do. And they were always joyful in doing it. And they were always openly, explicitly, unapologetically dependent upon the Spirit of God to help them. But they did not invite the Spirit into their lives to accomplish whatever they willed to do. Catch this, if nothing else. They committed their lives to accomplish whatever He willed them to do. If you're going to begin a conversation with the Holy Spirit, first of all, begin with your helplessness and acknowledge your need, but be careful asking what He wants you to do because He just might answer. And if He answers, more than likely, He will tell you something that you didn't want to hear. I know a high school teacher who asked that question once. And I prayed against what he told me to do. He didn't answer that one. In other words, we don't cry out for the Spirit of God to satisfy our own passions or our own desires. We cry out to be satisfied with the presence and will of God. So today, as we come forward for communion, some of you, quite frankly, need to really begin to view this as a cry out to God, because that's what it is. We believe it's important to do it every Sunday, because when you come to the cross, when you come and lift the, the bread that's a body broken for you, dipping in the blood that was shed for you, you are coming crying out, saying, I am helpless, I admit it, I know it, I feel it. But as you partake of Christ's sacrifice, you are reminded that you are not hopeless, You are helped. And this is the help he gives us where he sends his Holy Spirit and he empowers to do stuff you didn't even know you could do. I pray that you will join us in crying out to God about our helplessness and then celebrating and singing about how much he has done for us.